Cricket isn't the first sport you would associate with Ireland. But back in 2007, that all changed. Pakistan ranked number four in the world, out for 132. If they lose today, they're going home. This is the story of 15 Irish players, the majority of whom were amateur, who headed to the 2007 Cricket World Cup. By its end, Irish cricket had made headlines around the world, but no one was more surprised than those from the home of the game. Asma Mahmood, the ball to Trent Johnston, one run needed for victory, and Trent Johnston clears the boundary. It's going to be a six, and the Irish fans are celebrating. The captain leaps around the ground like a leprechaun. He's thumping the air. Ireland have registered an incredible win here at Sabina Park in the Cricket World Cup. Ireland have knocked out the giants of cricket Pakistan. In the months preceding the 2007 World Cup in the West Indies, I spent many hours trying to persuade my boss to actually send me to the Caribbean. There was a sniff of a gig with the BBC's legendary Test Match special in the offing as well. Eventually, it was off to Jamaica to see Ireland face Zimbabwe, Pakistan and the West Indies. But what was due to be a two-week stay ended up as a two-month endurance test. I can still remember my first introduction to cricket via BBC television in the 1970s, which led to playing and ultimately commentating on the game. But Irish cricket history goes back a lot further than the 1970s. Journalist and cricket historian Ger Siggins explains. There are references to, to cricket going back as far as the Cromwellian times. Um, there is a reference to Cromwell himself banning something he called cricket. The belief is, though, that this was probably curling because that would have been a much more widespread game at the time among the Irish. Um, however, in the 18th century, they're, they're, because cricket was developing strongly in Britain at the time, in England at the time, and obviously people, there was a lot of interaction between England and Ireland, people coming back and forward, the military, the civil service. So there, was, there were a few references to cricket in the 1730s and the 1750s, but the first, the first reference to, that survives in, in, in any sort of detail is a... There's a fantastic big game in, in the Phoenix Park in 1792 and that's pretty much taken as the starting point of Irish cricket. Um, well, it was played between the garrison, which was obviously the, the military men, and the, what they called the gentlemen of All-Ireland, which was essentially a group of, of aristocrats and uh, civil servants and, and that, those sort of types of people. It was very much an elite game, the way it was, uh, it was portrayed. It certainly wasn't representative of anything except this bunch of guys who obviously met together and... Uh, there was a side wager involved. But they were very, very much uh, an elite bunch of people. There were five Irish MPs there. Uh, there were lots of the, the top um, civil servants from the, the British administration involved. Um, there were lots of references to, to Irish cricket growing and, and lots of little games taking place and lots of stuff appearing in the, in the press over the next few years, mostly involving military sides, mostly involving you know English teams that were around or got up by regiments. Um, but around the seven, post post the uh, the Napoleonic Wars, when cricket took a huge leap in in England, um, the same effect seemed to have happened here, and there was lots of uh, lots of clubs and, and teams sprung up in places like Ballinasloe and in Kilkenny, in Galway, and in Trinity College, where where the club still exists today. Um, that's certainly the longest um, lasting one. There are a few other clubs around Dublin grew up around the same time. Um, there was a club called the Dublin Club who became Phoenix were founded in 1830 in Baggett Street and then they moved to the Phoenix Park that p 
period sort of from the 1820s, 1830s on, the game that started to develop and to grow. There was a, it was a period of relative peace, relative prosperity, until the famine obviously arrived along. Um, so, you know, people had, had a little bit more time to do these sort of things. Cricket became a very, very popular game, and certainly from the maybe the two or three decades before the GAA was founded, cricket was undoubtedly the biggest game in the country in terms of, in terms of its, uh, the amount of games played and the amount of uh, coverage it got and the amount of people in, involved in it. But one game was the start of its comeback in Ireland when Ireland ambushed the Great West Indies back in 1969. Having faced England in a test match at Lords the previous day, the West Indies headed to Sion Mills in County Tyrone. The night before, they were treated to Irish hospitality and were bowled out for only 25 runs the following day. The recent history of Irish cricket may well have started against 11 West Indians who weren't able to handle the booze as well as their Irish counterparts. And he's out. Butcher is caught in the gully by Duffy. And he's out. He's caught at mid-on. Clive Lloyd out for one. Goodwin now bowls to Shepherd. And he's out, caught at gully. And the West End is now 8 for 6. And the new batsman is Michael Finlay, the wicketkeeper. And that's out, caught at mid-off. No, yes, caught at the third attempt. The West End is now in even worse trouble. They are 12 for 7. And that's up in the air. And that's going to be out, caught at cover. It's Ivan Anderson underneath it. And he's out, Clyde Walcott. And it's a reared and bowling to Findlay. And Finlay has hit it up in the air, and that's going to be out caught by the wicketkeeper. He's out caught by Cahoon. It's going to be Doug Goodwin to continue from the mill end, burning to the right-hander, Shillingford. And he's out bold, hit the top of the off stump, and the West Indies are all out for 25. The basics of the game can be simple. 11 players aside, one side bats first and tries to score as many runs as possible. The opposition then bat and try to beat that score. But the nuances of the game can be difficult to understand. Test match, or five-day cricket, dominated during the 20th century. But in the latter part, one-day internationals became popular. The first World Cup was in 1975, when a Clive Lloyd-inspired West Indies beat Australia in the final at Lords. He got it in certain terms. Beautiful flashing cover drive, typical of the man. The bat raised, the crowd on their feet, and what a delightful exhibition this has been by Clive Lloyd. Until the 1990s, Ireland couldn't enter the World Cup until they became an associate nation of the International Cricket Council but twice they failed to qualify for the finals. Their captain was Kyle McCallum. Looking back on it, we, we just assumed that there were three teams that qualified in 97 and they changed it to five teams in 2001 and we kind of figured that, well, we're going to be there, uh, we're going to be one of those five teams and everybody else had kind of taken the whole thing to a new level and we had, we had stood still and, and, and we were caught, we were very much caught out. We had a player sent home um, for disciplinary reasons and, and, and there, were, there were conflicting ideas as to how the game should be played and who should be playing whatever role and, and I suppose when you look at our preparation and we had a number of players who went out there with niggles and injuries and, and concerns and, and they broke down 
It was certainly the lowest ebb for me, but personally, over over my time involved in the side, I don't think it was perhaps the lowest ebb that Irish cricket has ever been through. But um, just during my 13 years in the side, that was certainly the, the very lowest point. Uh, 97 was tough to take because we missed out so narrowly, but 2001 was a very bitter pill to swallow you. Irish cricket continued its slow rebuild. It was during this time that I was playing for Carlisle, a Jewish club on the south side of Dublin, now a Ben Dunn gymnasium. However, things were about to change as the Irish Cricket Union approached South African Eddie Burrell to take over at the helm of the Irish team, with the express intention of qualifying for the 2007 finals in the West Indies. I'm from Port Elizabeth, or Eastern Cape, and I had worked all my working life after playing uh, for Eastern Province Cricket, and I was the... Um, the head coach at Eastern Province um, and I was in the job for three years and my wife and I had had a discussion about uh, one evening about possibility of going to the UK for three years and the next morning the Irish job was in, was advertised um, what, and uh, I applied and next thing I was on a plane to, to Ireland. I knew nothing about Irish cricket. I, I, was, I knew embarrassingly little about Ireland. I, I had to start work on the 1st of April 2002 and I met John Wright um, in, and he phoned me up and said we've got a meeting 9 o'clock and I'll meet you in the foyer of the Grand Hotel and I, um, I met him downstairs and I was dressed in my jacket and tie ready for my meeting with the board as I thought. I was a bit concerned that I hadn't the meeting, the minutes of the previous meeting or, or an agenda and we ended up having a cup of tea in front of the fire. And, and, and uh, you know, after five minutes I realized that there was, I was the only full-time employed person. There was no office. Um, the storeroom was the boot of my car. And, you know, basically the, the office was the cell phone that he gave me. And, you know, after leaving a very professional setup in Port Elizabeth where I had a bowling coach, a batting coach, a PA, I had a... You know, all the players were on full-time contracts. You know, it was it was a bit of a come down. Um, but I also realised pretty soon after that that, you know, everyone is looking at me to get them into the next World Cup, and that was the, you know, the 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 main objective was to play in the World Cup. And I I was you know all the the burden of responsibility seemed to be on my shoulders, and and I realised there was a bit of a job to do. Um, to move Irish, well, move Irish cricket forward and get them into the World Cup for the first time. Borrell was dealing with a mostly amateur setup. Some played county cricket for English sides, but there was no sense that they would become world beaters. One to which he turned was Australian Trent Johnston, who was married to an Irish woman. Uh, things were going pretty well back in Sydney at that stage. I just broken into the New South Wales squad and. You know, we just married, moved back to Australia. Uh, Claudia was on the way um, and those sort of things. So we're pretty settled back then. And then it all came about when we went to a um, uh, visit a doctor. Claudia was having bad ear infections. So he came across and, and said that, you know, there was a, a clause in the constitution or something along those lines that um, I could get a passport through post-nuptial dependency. And, um, you know, it turned out that way. Uh, I rang up the passport authorities over here from Sydney and spoke to a guy by the name of Damien Joyce so um, who's Ed and Dom's older brother 
so you know I was quietly confident. You know, it was a massive, a massive step for us to take to sell up what we had in Sydney and um, to take a risk. You know, that was two thousand and four. You know, we hadn't even qualified for the World Cup then, which was a year later. So you know, obviously talking to eighty and where he was, where his plans were for Irish cricket. You know, I thought that, you know, it's a an exciting time and it gives me sort of one last crack at getting back onto the world stage and playing in a World Cup. And you know, I think if anyone that's um, you know fair income about their particular sport, you know, a World Cup is a pinnacle. And for someone to dangle that carrot in front of you, it's pretty hard to sort of to walk past it and you know and move on in life. Johnson settled into the Irish setup, which was captained at that stage by Jason Mullins. Inspired by Burrell, they reached the 2007 finals by taking the qualifier route in 2005, which was held in Ireland. By the time the 2007 World Cup finals had come around, Mullins was gone and Johnson took over as skipper. Crucial, according to Burrell, who liked his attitude. Eddie had brought in Trent Johnson as the new captain. The question was... Why? Hard work. You know, he, he came to the practices and, um, and sweated and led the training from the front. And, and really it was, it was um, getting someone who could, who could lead uh, the players uh, in an area that I thought we should be going. And so, you know, he led, uh, you know, in the captain leads from the front in training and in the gym and, and all that, well, the players are, are, are obviously going to follow. Yeah, it was a big decision. Um, it was the right decision in hindsight. You know, hindsight's a perfect science. Um, but it was a risky decision. I, th- I think we, we did move in a different direction and we did, um, we, you know, the, the players responded well. Um, and there were tricky times. You know, it wasn't all plain sailing. But... Uh, they were under pressure to to train. They were under pressure to uh, to do a, a massive amount of fielding. And when the captain leads that, the players follow. And so, you know, the results prove that it was the right decision. Cricket, lovely cricket. At last where I saw it. Cricket, lovely cricket. At last where I saw it. Ireland had finally reached the World Cup finals. Getting on the plane was a squad of 15, 30 of whom were in full-time employment outside of the game. The names and their job descriptions didn't exactly roll off the tongue. Porterfield, Bray, Morgan, Botha, Niall and Kevin O'Brien, David Langford-Smith, McCallum, Rankin, White, John and Paul Mooney, Carroll, Peter Gillespie. Kenny Carroll was a postman. McCallum and Andrew White were school teachers, while fast bowler Rankin tended the family farm in Beedie in County Derry. Trent Johnston was a fabric salesman who still remembers the flight to the West Indies vividly. Yeah, I think it was, you know, well, it was the first time a lot of us had flown business class. I suppose that was a, a little... I always remember the photo of myself, Peter Gillespie, sitting down with a nice little, bo- a nice little bottle, a nice glass of uh, champagne. We may have finished the bottle. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I think there was excitement. You know, I think, um, you know, knowing that we are going to a World Cup, knowing that we're going to be playing against the best, and we've got a massive chance to drive Irish cricket forward. Um, I think that was a lot of the things that the guys were saying. Um, we knew we were in a pretty good draw. 
Um, you knew the draw was favor- favourable to us with Zimbabwe first and then, you know, Pakistan a couple of days later and, you know, to finish off with the West Indies. So I suppose, you know, our preparation was was pretty much what we wanted and then sort of going in to our first game against Zimbabwe and our performance against South Africa uh, in that warm-up uh, and then comprehensively beating Canada, we knew that we were sort of... We, we were ready. We were ready for Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe was first up on Thursday the 15th of March 2007 at Sabina Park in Kingston, Jamaica. The Irish team weren't the only one feeling the nerves. I was due to commentate for the BBC's TMS. I had a sleepless night, worried I'd screw up broadcasting to millions. Zimbabwe faced civil unrest in 2007. Robert Mugabe was at the head of a country in turmoil. The reaction of Kevin Curran, the Zimbabwean coach, to the trouble in this country was jaw-dropping. The guys are here focusing on, on the game and they'll go into the, 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 all three games in the same manner. Um, it hasn't really affected them directly. So, um, And I think it's, it's been blown out of proportion a little bit. It's, it's, it's not a, a, as big a, a crisis as everyone makes out to be. On a humid morning in Kingston, with many of the Irish fans making a three-hour journey from Ocherias on the north of Jamaica, Ireland lost the toss and were put into bat by Zimbabwe. And Pofu turns just short of the sponsor's logo. Bray settles in again, the left-hander, on 99. Here's Mpofu, he's in, he bowls. Bray strikes it, that's going to be the 100. He's going to get four behind square on the offside. Jeremy Bray, the first ever Irish World Cup centurion. He signals with the bat towards the Irish balcony. The island fans, the Blarney army, are in full voice. Full of applause. What a moment for Irish cricket and a moment for Jeremy Bray. He's 103 not out of 129 balls. Very well batted, sir. And the Irish innings is over. Their first ever dig in the ICC Cricket World Cup, and they've done very well. They've finished on 221 for nine. Langford Smith out to the final ball for 15. And Jeremy Bray has carried his bat magnificently through for the Irish to finish on 115 not out. Zimbabwe will chase 222 for victory. Ireland made 221 from their innings. Zimbabwe were heading for victory in reply until they collapsed. And in the end, the game came down to the final ball. What an evening of cricket. The best game of the World Cup so far in its embryonic stage, is no question about it. Here's Andrew White. Zimbabwe need one runs for victory, and they could be in wicket. I think they've done it. Ireland have sealed a famous tie. It's beaten the outside edge of Massacanieri's bat. He's been stumped, and out of nowhere, Ireland have rescued a magnificent tie here in Kingston, Jamaica. What an extraordinary game of cricket. Massacanieri can't believe
It was an epic result, a tie against a test-playing side. The nerves were now gone. This was pure excitement. Uh, Owen Morgan with me. Owen, oh, that's a, an unbelievable finish. Have you played in a game like that before? No, I never have. It's a first for me. I mean, this whole trip has been, has been a first for me, the World Cup. I mean, the close game today, I mean, we got us into a, a position, ourselves into a position today where we thought we, we, might, we might lose, you know, but, but the captain really rallied us around and, and got us G'd up and, and we really fought to the end and we're happy with the results we got. And Mr O'Brien, have you been involved in a finish like that before? Uh, I've had some close finishes down the years, but that is just the uh, closest game I think I can ever play in and hopefully we'll have to play in many more like it. I know it's a point, you obviously were looking for the two, but uh, a display like that towards the end of the innings as well will, will certainly do you up for the Pakistan match now on Saturday. Yeah, like, obviously we wanted two points, but you know, a tie like that, I think we're going to come out the happier side. Pakistan on Saturday, hopefully we can win the toss and, and bowl first on those conditions because I think the conditions play a massive part, you know, Early on, we're, the ball's seeming around, swinging around. It's not easy. So if we can hopefully win the toss on Saturday, stick the Pakistanis in and uh, chase down a good score, hopefully. Trent doesn't win many tosses. I think he should go home and practice tonight, do you think? Yeah, I think maybe he doesn't win too many, so maybe we should send somebody out just out for the toss, you know? Two days later, St. Patrick's Day, Ireland returned to Sabina Park in Kingston to face the mighty Pakistan, who'd lost their opening game against the West Indies. A loss to Ireland meant they were going home. St Patrick's Day was was unbelievable. It felt like you were playing probably at Eden Gardens with the noise that people were making. You know, people flying in from the states and you know the different islands and and all that sort of stuff to be there. Um, you know, it was it was it was phenomenal. Um, I don't know exactly how many people were there that day, but um, you know, it certainly felt like it was a full stadium. Um, I think the noise. I I personally reckon the noise was probably greater on that particular day than it was when we played the West Indies about five or six days later. Um, and there probably would have been 10,000 less people, I suppose. It was just great. It was a great atmosphere, um, something that we'll never forget. First thing I, I remember thinking was, um, I wonder how we're going to go in the Six Nations because that was all coming down um, because we had a couple of supporters down in the foyer at Metis that were going off to watch the rugby and then going down to the cricket. So initial thoughts was, you know, I wonder if we're a chance of winning the Six Nations. And, and then France ended up doing us on for and against, I think it was. so. Um, and then obviously it turned and then turned up to the game and then turned up to the ground and saw the wicket was a bit green. So I sort of, sort of thought <laughs> the gods are looking on us again here. So it was um, certainly interesting morning, yeah. We were surprised at the support. We couldn't believe how many people had come from Ireland and paid all their euros to come and support us and there was there was a, a feeling of well we need to reciprocate this in some sort of a way they've shown faith in us um, we needed to repay that faith and there was a huge determination not only for the Pakistan game but for the whole of the you know the whole of the World Cup we did realize there was support um, more support than ever I think um, but there was a significant moment where um, St. Patrick had come from <laughs> from Ireland and uh, David O'Connor from Balbriggan had, had sort of arrived and he was walking in with a, a few hundred supporters behind him and he had a staff and dressed up as St. Patrick and the play, we all saw that one of the players had looked out the back of the change room and, and brought us all over and you know it was quite funny but it was quite inspiring and motivational in, you know as well we You've got this, this you know, unbelievable sight of St. Patrick walking in the ground. 
can't remember if I called right or if I, to- or I tossed the coin right that day. But anyway, come down and we bowl first and the boys did a great job. It was fantastic. Incredible. Pakistan ranked number four in the world, out for 132. If they lose today, they're going home. The final wicket, Umar Gul off the bowling of Kyle McCallum. And it's now Pakistan all out for 132. Ireland are chasing 133 to win this World Cup Group D game and send Pakistan out of the tournament. Ireland needed to hold their nerve. 132 was not a huge total and Johnston was not going to let his side relax. Probably every now and again I rant, I rant and rave when I, when I was captain but 80 sort of went in there and did his normal thing and I don't know what came over me, I just sort of said, you know, I, you know I'd had enough, you know, I'd, I'd, well, I'd enjoyed what we'd had sort of the, the two weeks before, uh, the warm-up games, the nice hotels, the, you know, driving you know, in a bus going to a game and people recognising who you are and you're sort of waving out at them and just the just the all round being at a World Cup and knowing that you know we've got a massive opportunity here to to be in the Caribbean for another four weeks. I just sort of looked around, I don't know where it come from, it just come out and you know I suppose that's what happened to some some speeches in history. They just come out and they just sort of work well and it sort of worked well. Um, it was probably the only time I had the full attention of the dressing room so yeah we sort of turned out quite nice. Now we've got a chance to go to the Super 8s. We have got a massive fucking chance to stay in the West Indies for an extra four weeks. It's up to every single one of us and see how much we want to fucking stay here because I can promise you it's going to be tough out there. He looked around the room and he said, uh, do you want to be back in Dublin on Monday morning at six o'clock in the morning delivering post? Do you want to be back teaching this time next week? Do you want to be back in the office on Monday morning? Do you want to be back on the farm? Lengthy, do you want to be sitting on the M50? And I said to him, I said, sure as hell, I don't want to go back and, and sell fabric. Get out there, score these runs. Two runs for an incredible win here. Here's Mahmood into Kevin O'Brien. He angles it into the offside. There's a shot at the stumps and O'Brien is home. The throw misses. And now the Irish start to celebrate. Kevin O'Brien is pumping his fists at the crowd already. He knows they're on the brink of something marvellous. Ireland need one run to all but put themselves into the Super 8s of the World Cup at the first time of asking. Pakistan on the brink of despair. They're going to be heading home, heading home from Jamaica, heading home from the World Cup. I could tell that it was going to be a slow ball and sure enough it came out the back of his hand and I sort of just swung through it. I knew that if I could get half a piece of it you know it was going to go for at least one because the field was in stopping the single so and to hit it for six was amazing it was certainly nothing that was sort of premeditated or anything like that it just sort of happened at the spur of the moment as a mood to bowl to Trent Johnston one run needed for victory and Trent Johnston clears the boundary it's going to be a six and the Irish fans are celebrating the captain leaps around the ground like a leprechaun he's thumping the air Ireland have registered an incredible win here at Sabina Park in the Cricket World Cup Ireland have knocked out the giants of cricket, Pakistan. Pakistan, who've played well over a 1,000 one-day internationals between them. Pakistan, a team with some of the best one-day players in the world. They've been embarrassed. Well, what about that for results? Obviously very pleased. Yeah, I think uh, we talked about it before we started. You know, if ever there's a day to beat Pakistan, this was it. 
with the, the big crowd and St. Patrick's Day and all that. So uh, very pleasing. We bowled extremely well and gave, us our, gave ourselves a chance. So uh, it was nerve-wracking towards the end, but we don't make things easy. Certainly not. Absolute euphoria. It's very difficult to actually remember what went on, except running down the steps at Sabina Park and personally slipping and falling um, on the concrete at the bottom, and then out to just get on top of Trent Johnson to be quite honest. Although I was, I was maybe being slower than most, I was I was at the back of the queue, but certainly the the, the lap around the ground and, and seeing what it meant to the Irish supporters, you know, would have brought a tear to your eye. And there was a lot of celebration that night. I can tell you. Messages of support flooded in. One from the Irish president. Can I say to the whole team how proud you have made Ireland. You have put Ireland on the cricket map right around the world. And very importantly, you have really roused the Irish spirit back home. There is such a mood of celebration, such a mood of pride. Ireland headed from Kingston back to their family and supporters in Ocherias and the three-hour hike back over the Blue Mountains with their official song played on the bus on the way home. A real gem. Come on. While Ireland were celebrating, there was devastation for Pakistan and their coach, Bob Woolmer. We're sorry that we performed like we have. We didn't mean to do it. However, um, you know, when we get back reception-wise, um, I, I doubt it'll be very good. He wasn't joking. Very disappointing performance by Pakistan. Bunch of non-professional players. They should completely revamp the site. I feel pretty sad about it, but I think it should not have have happened, the reason being is that it's very difficult to get the team going instead of giving them some right direction if you just let them go, I think it's not going to leave a good message for, for, for other people all over Pakistan who love cricket Tributes to the Irish cricket team have been pouring in following its historic victory over Pakistan at the World Cup in Jamaica the team's three-wicket win, its first ever against a test nation in a competitive match, has put Pakistan out of the competition. A short time ago, it was reported that Pakistan's coach, Bob Woolmer, was taken to hospital after being found unconscious in his hotel room. Woolmer subsequently died, which shook the Irish team, who a couple of hours earlier had faced his side. The following morning, I was on the beach in Ocherias with the squad when the news of Woolmer's death came through. We had walked along the beach um, and, and met Eddie and, and, and explained to him, and he was very hurt because he was quite close to, in fact, he was very close to Bob Woolmer, who had been a big, a big sort of advocate of the associate game. And um, so it was, uh, it was huge. And then the rumours started flying about, and obviously we had to go back to the hotel, and the hotel was a completely different place than what we had left. And um, you know, you were really much confined to your room now. There was so much security going on, and all the, the, the rumours that were abounding. And, and yeah, it certainly brought everybody down to earth with a huge bump. And um, certainly, like I say, it was, yeah, it, it was, uh, it took, it, it burst the bubble big time. The following morning, the questions and rumours flying around Jamaica finally came to an end. The pathologist report states that Mr. Woolmer's death was due to asphyxia as a result of manual strangulation. In these circumstances, the matter of Mr. Woolmer's death 
is now being treated by the Jamaica police as a case of murder. For Irish coach Eddie Burrell, Warmer's death was personal. Probably achieved the greatest upset in World Cup history. And, and, and for that to be, uh, you know, almost taken away through human tragedy um, was something that it was very difficult to, to handle. And, you know, you're fighting with your, um, your, um, your conscience and, you know, and um, should you be feeling so happy in such a, you know, in such a sad moment and all these sort of contradictory feelings were coming, were suddenly coming to the fore. You know, I knew him well from South Africa. He's not South African, but he coached South Africa and I was a provincial coach um, and we had a lot of contact. You know, the uh, the handling of the case, you know, it was confusing. You know, there were so many different, you know, every day there was, you know, a, a news conference and, and something else would be, uh, would would be announced and and it was it was tricky times because we had to now prepare ourselves for you know getting going into the super eights um which was you know we'd achieved something you know unbelievably um fantastic and and it was quite a leadership challenge for me to to uh to keep the boys um focused on the task at hand but also be very respectful and dignified in in what was happening with with Bob Woolmer. And, uh, you know, there were difficult times where there was a memorial service and I walked in to the memorial service to hear, oh, the Irish coach has arrived, we'd like him to say a few words. And, you know, you, you, oh, you know there were many things thrust upon me and the players um, that we'd never had training for or never prepared for. And so you really had to just think and, and respond, uh, you know, just on your feet. And um, they were tricky times, um, but I think we did quite well. I think, you know, we we celebrated in our own way in private and, and then focused on the next job um, and tried to let the Bob Woolmer incident, um, you know, to one side. Um, and allowed other people to deal with it. Ireland had to move on. They were through to the second stage, and the next game they were defeated by the West Indies. Finishes it off with a style. Beat Pakistan, beat Zimbabwe, and now they've beaten Ireland. Nothing to be ashamed of in their first World Cup, and they get through to the Super 8s. By now the realisation had set in. The squad and the Irish press corps would be in the West Indies for a lot longer than we expected. What started as a two-week sojourn was turning into an epic. Next up, Guyana, officially a Caribbean country but landlocked on South America and games against New Zealand, South Africa and the old enemy England. And there's real Irish delight out there. England had an old Irish boy, Ed Joyce, opening the batting. Joyce had played for Ireland in the 2005 World Cup qualifiers, but declared for England in order to try and play test cricket. Now he was preparing to face his former country. But it didn't go too well for Joyce against Ireland. Now we've got Rankin, tall giant of a man. who Bowls and he's bowled him. Joyce playing no stroke. He's lost his off stump. 
And what a start for Ireland, a complete misjudgment by Ed Joyce. He played no stroke to a full straight delivery. It simply ripped his off stump out of the ground. Yeah, it's a terrible feeling in any game of cricket, believe me, when you, especially when you leave the ball and to, to hopefully sail, you know, harmlessly by your stumps and you can hear the, the, what we call the death rattle, which is the stumps being knocked over. So it was a, a gross error of judgment, there's no doubt about that, and it wasn't a great feeling walking back. And, and, I, and at that stage, I hadn't done particularly well in that World Cup, and England weren't having a great World Cup, so it was a... You know, it wasn't a great feeling, that's for sure, but uh, as I said, it's never a great feeling when that happens. Despite the dismissal of Joyce, in the end, there was disappointment for Ireland. Uh, Splintoff bowling to McAllen, he's bowling. He's knocked out his leg stump, and England win by 48 runs. They've taken the two points, and well-played Ireland for putting up a fight. Ireland also lost to South Africa and New Zealand in Guyana, and were then mauled by Australia, the eventual champions when they moved to Barbados. Trent Johnson to bowl. It's time to Gilchrist. And he bowls him. And he leaps in the air and does his little dance. Gilchrist playing inside the line. And it uh, sends the bales flying. And Ireland got themselves a wicket, 62 for one. Yep, well, it, uh, he got it just right. It just swung back in to the left-hander. And Gilchrist missed it on the drive. I mean, he's always pretty loose. And Trent Johnson could show us his little celebration. It's, it's the first time the Irish have really had something to smile about in this match, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but they've got a wicket. It won't be a 10-wicket defeat. I'd quite like to see the Irish get another wicket just to have another look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Rankin past Curtin at the commentary box end to Hussey. And he... Ah. That's the six runs required. Straight into the crowd on the leg side. And it's all over in the 13th over. The 92 runs come up. And Australia win it by nine wickets. 92 for one. Ireland made 91 all out. Ireland hadn't won a game since the surprise win over Pakistan. The feeling was that Eddie Burrell's side had to win another game to make the finals worthwhile. Their penultimate game was against Bangladesh in Barbados. There was quite a lot of pressure on that game because um, in the ICC rules, um, we knew that if we beat another test country, we would be then ranked in, you know, in, the, in the upper echelons of, of world cricket and we'd get a top 10 ranking. We'd be ranked 10 in the world if we managed to beat Bangladesh. Uh, and we knew we could. The Bangladesh-Ireland fixture, I think, was one that upset the ICC um, simply because they had it pencilled in. It was due to be Pakistan-India. It was to be a full house at the Kensington Oval, and instead it was Ireland-Bangladesh. So they opened the gates and they let everyone in. I think there were about sixteen or 17,000 there. And having batted very well first, we, we then went on and did the business with the ball. But I still vividly remember feeling down at third man and thinking this game's won and looking around myself at the, and everybody was cheering for us. Um, you know, Dave Langford-Smith's dance and Trent Johnson's dance. I think we, we had become sort of crowd favourites and the whole place was, was bouncing, cheering for ice cricket. And it, it, like it, I actually did become quite emotional looking around, thinking about where we had come from. Um, a two-day game against Wales at Rathmines was a, was a very long way away, you know, we used to play five and six games a season at most and all of a sudden you're standing here live on Sky Sports playing in front of a virtually full house at the Kensington Oval it was sometimes it's hard to take in that we've actually done there but I think it's testament to the hard work that everybody in Irish could put in to get us there and we've got a game on in goes Johnston 
And he bowls, he's bowled in, and Ireland have won by 74 runs. And they join the group of ranked one-day international teams as the players there gather and they hug their captain. That's a memorable victory, and it's a pretty comprehensive one too. And looking round the ground, well, everyone is now suddenly Irish. There are flags flying. It seems that everyone's now wearing an emerald green shirt. And out in the middle, the players still congratulate each other, wrap their arms around each other and celebrate. Ireland lost their final game against Sri Lanka on Grenada. But they were spent. No more to give. And Eddie Burrell stepped down after their greatest journey. He couldn't face the team to say goodbye, so he sent them a letter. The, uh, the team sort of... Um the pre-match sort of uh, meeting that he had written down about three or four pages so we sort of sat there and read it and I, you know it was, Peter Gillespie was probably in tears after about three or four words because he's just emotional as, as 80 and then I think by the end of it there was a lot of other guys that were sort of sitting back and holding back the tears 80 had left the room so it was sort of yeah it was it was a different way for him to sort of go out but that's the way he is and that's the way he, he thought best and you know, he certainly wouldn't sort of hold anything against him in that regards. Uh, when I look back to 1986 and see where we came from, and, and they've experienced what we what, what we experienced in 2007, um, there's no question that I think it, it it shook Irish cricket up. I think it, it, you know the authorities and the and the people in charge of the administration of the game here realised that that the game had moved forward so much on the pitch that that things had to change off the field as well to keep to keep up with it, and they've done so. On my return from the Caribbean, I was surprised to see Irish kids were playing with bat and ball in the streets. Irish cricket had come of age. In the 2011 World Cup, 13 of the 15 squad were now professional. Beating the best teams in the world was no longer the shock it once was. Thanks to the legacy of the 15 heroes of the Caribbean. Oh,